0: is Crimes of the Centuries. For two months, Evelina Edith Marmon had been living a young woman's nightmare. She had given birth to a beautiful baby girl, a girl she loved and wanted to see thrive, but Evelina knew that simply couldn't happen if the girl stayed with her. Evelina made little money as a 25-year-old barmaid. She was not married, but her lover was to a different woman, and he was keen to keep it that way. Abortion was illegal and, if procured by illicit means, incredibly dangerous. As such, Evelina gave birth to baby Doris in January 1896, after which the two were left entirely on their own. It surely wasn't the life Evelina had envisioned for herself. Once upon a time, she had earned praise for her abilities. In 1883, her name appeared in The Citizen, a newspaper in Gloucester, England, for winning a prize for her freehand drawing skills. But for young women in the 19th century, status was a fickle thing. At 25, she was already a spinster, and now, saddled with an illegitimate child, the odds were strongly against her ever making much of herself. That didn't mean she had to bring her baby down with her. So when Evelina spotted an advertisement in a local newspaper about a couple seeking to adopt a child, she tested the waters. She sent a reply using the alias Mrs. Scott and asked for more information. A Mrs. Harding replied, explaining that she and her husband were plain, homely people living in a good and comfortable home in the country. The two didn't have children, but Mrs. Harding desperately wanted a dear little baby girl to raise as her own. For Evelina, this was everything she could have hoped for. Mrs. Harding not only promised to keep Evelina posted on Doris's progress as the little girl grew up, but she even said she could visit if she wanted to. The arrangements wouldn't be cheap. Understandably, Mrs. Harding requested a small premium to help cover the cost of caring for baby Doris, And though the premium was more than half a year's salary for someone like Evelina, ensuring that Doris had a fair shot in life was well worth the cost. So Evelina scrounged together the money and packed Doris's best clothes and favorite blankets and handed the girl over to Mrs. Harding. By the time Evelina realized she'd made a horrible mistake, it was far too late, not just for Doris, but for possibly dozens of children in the region in a case so shocking it made international headlines and helped spark new laws protecting children. The woman to whom Evelina Marmon had handed over baby Doris wasn't named Mrs. Harding. She'd been born Amelia Hobley, but the name the world would soon know as her ghastly case unfolded was Amelia Dyer, AKA the baby farmer, AKA one of the deadliest serial killers of the Victorian era. Amelia had been born to parents Samuel and Sarah Hobley, who married in August of 1822. Three years later, when their oldest son Thomas was baptized, Samuel listed his occupation as cordwainer, which was usually synonymous with shoemaker. Sarah raised five children in all, three boys and two girls, of which Amelia was the youngest. Public records say she was baptized in Gloucester on New Year's Eve of 1837. It seems mom Sarah struggled with mental health issues. From a biography documentary.
1: When Amelia was young, she watched her mom suffer from mental illness due to typhus. Her mom eventually died in 1848. Amelia relocated to Bristol to live with her aunt after her mother's death before serving as an apprenticeship with a corset
2: maker.
0: Once Amelia moved out of her house, she began renting a room as a boarder, where she met a man named George Thomas, whom she'd soon marry. During that marriage, she began to study and practice nursing, though she curtailed that work when she became pregnant with her first child. That was customary at the time. Women with kids didn't tend to work outside of the home, though Amelia never gave up nursing entirely. Meanwhile, Amelia's dad Samuel died in 1859, leaving his shoe business to his oldest son. Now, one of the reasons I like using crime to study history is because oh so very many parallels can be drawn when you look at a case through the lens of current events. This case deals with choices women might make when they become pregnant and issues they face after a child's birth. If you're listening to this story and it compels you to connect some dots with current events, know that I get it. Though also know that I'm not going to delve into that much. Even if I wanted to, I can't. I'm a working journalist and would like to stay one so that I can feed my own child. With that in mind, let's keep focused on this case. Life for women wasn't easy in the Victorian era, especially for unwed women who got pregnant. Not only was there the stigma attached, you should have kept those legs closed, Missy, but in 1834, the Parliament of the United Kingdom had passed what was called the Poor Law Amendment Act. This act was often referred to as the new Poor Laws because what they amended was the original Poor Laws that had been created in 1601. The goal of all incarnations of these laws ostensibly was to help poor people, though there's a lot of debate over how helpful any of the laws actually were.
3: What the Poor Laws did overall is switch relief from being the responsibility of the church to the responsibility of the state.
0: That's a lecture via Marginal Revolution University, an online library of economics education videos. Now, not everyone agreed with this approach. It's kind of interesting, in fact, because in England, the approach was different than in nearby Scotland, which kept the responsibility of poor relief with the church. But there's overlap, too. Generally, the poor laws offered poor people two types of help, indoor relief and outdoor relief. Outdoor relief might mean you're offered subsidized food or public employment or wage subsidies, but you're not required to enter a poorhouse to get that help.
3: Indoor relief means giving aid, but requiring that the poor enter some kind of poorhouse.
0: Now, for those of you thinking, hey, a poorhouse sounds great. You get room and board and a job to boot? Sign me up. In reality, most people prefer to have control over their lives and their homes, But just in case there were folks wanting to freeload, an 1832 report by the Royal Commission addressed that. The report offered a bunch of recommendations to overhaul the existing poor laws, and one of those overhauls was to basically get rid of outdoor relief altogether. It proposed that the only way you should get help was if you entered a poorhouse, also called a workhouse and the conditions there should be bad enough that only truly indigent people would be willing to go there. The report read, quote, "...into such a house none will enter voluntarily, work, confinement, and discipline will deter the indolent and vicious, and nothing but extreme necessity will induce any to accept the comfort which must be obtained by the surrender of their free agency." and the sacrifice of their accustomed habits and gratifications," end quote. This report laid the groundwork for the new poor laws enacted in 1834. So in other words, the goal was to make these poor-slash-workhouses suck big time. Parents would be separated from their children. Couples would be separated from each other. So for a single mother, entering a poorhouse was a terrible proposition, Because not only was she giving up her own freedom and autonomy, but she wasn't even doing it for the sake of taking better care of her child, because her child was whisked away and often mistreated by a bunch of strangers. That's why it didn't feel like a viable option for a woman like the barmaid Evelina Marmon from our intro. Evelina didn't have a great job, but it was a job nonetheless. Barmaids often were given free places to live, at least, and they could make decent tips. They felt mildly in control of their lives, whereas that would assuredly not be the case in a poorhouse. If you're wondering about the father and Evelina's scenario, that new poor law of 1834 benefited him in a huge way. The commission report had recommended that mothers of illegitimate children should receive much less support than they had under the original laws. It had been that the fathers of these born-out-of-wedlock children would be tracked down by poor law authorities and forced to pay child support, but the Royal Commission decided that was unfair to the men in these situations. They wrote, quote, The effect has been to promote bastardy, "...to make want of chastity on the woman's part the shortest road to obtaining either a husband or a competent maintenance, and to encourage extortion and perjury." From an episode of the TV show Murder Maps. Essentially, what that legislation did
1: was put all the responsibility, moral, economic,
0: and legal, on the woman. This is criminologist and researcher Judith Robotham. You no longer had a claim on the parish
1: to support you, except through the workhouse. And what
0: were you going to do if you had an infant to support? Where were you going to turn Evelina posted a newspaper ad looking for an adoptive parent, and while checking out her own bare-bones ad, she saw another ad purporting to be from a loving, barren couple and thought, geez, maybe this is fate. She decided to investigate to see if this couple was the answer to her worries. She replied to the ad she found under a pseudonym to protect her identity, and she knew it was likely that the name offered in reply, Mrs. Annie Harding, was likely a pseudonym too, but that wasn't a red flag. That's just how things were done when you were dealing with such a hot-button matter. Anyway, the letters Evelina received were heartwarming. They said things like,
2: Myself and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own.
3: A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love.
0: That's an excerpt of one of the letters as read in a reality entertainment documentary. To be clear, there were quite a few letters. I mean, this wasn't some one-and-done catfishing correspondence. Several of the letters between Evelina and Amelia Dyer, aka Mrs. Harding, were presented in court hearings. We know this because the Daily Telegraph of London transcribed some of the letters and printed them on April 20, 1896. Here are some of the things Amelia Dyer wrote to this nervous 25-year-old unwed barmaid mother. Quote, "'Rest assured I will do my duty by that dear child. I will be a mother as far as possible lies in my power. And if I come for her, if you like to come and stay for a few days or a week later on, I shall be pleased to make you welcome. It is just lovely here in the summer. There is an orchard opposite our front door. You will say it is healthy and pleasant hoping to hear soon I am yours, End quote. Another letter, quote, I shall be only too pleased for yourself or any friends to come to see us sometimes. We don't have many visitors out here in the country. I assure you it would be as great a treat to us as the change would be. I shall really feel more comfortable to know the dear little soul had someone that really cared for her. I shall value her all the more. Rest assured, I promise you faithfully— I will do a mother's duty by her, and I will bring her up entirely just the same as my own child, End quote. Evelina suggested that instead of a one-lump payment for Doris's care, she pay a weekly amount, an ongoing fee. Amelia Dyer insisted that wasn't necessary. She wrote, quote, Dear child, I shall only be too glad to have her, and I will take her entirely for the sum of ten pounds. She shall be of no further expense to her family, end quote. Now that amount would have been a huge hit to Evelina, who would have been lucky to earn 30 pounds a year even after generous tips. She must have scrimped and saved to come up with that fee. On March 31st, 1896, Evelina bundled up baby Doris, met Mrs. Harding at an agreed-upon spot, signed an adoption agreement, and handed over the baby and the 10-pound payment. Evelina even rode for a stop on the train that took Amelia and Doris to Reading. Along the way, she chit-chatted with her daughter's adopted mother, hearing again all of the kindly assurances that she'd read in the repeated letters. With tears in her eyes, Evelina said goodbye to her baby as she saw them leave Gloucester for Reading. Amelia had been so loving that it never once occurred to her that Doris was in danger. The baby never made it to Reading. Instead, Amelia wrapped thick white tape around Doris's neck and strangled the child. The next day, she put the girl's body in a carpet bag alongside another child, a toddler she had adopted and killed in the very same manner, plopped a brick into the bag for extra weight and dropped it into the River Thames. Then she sent a letter to Evelina Marmon, telling her how wonderfully Doris was doing. The carpet bag that Amelia Dyer had dumped into the River Thames was her undoing, though it was by no means her first kill, nor even the first of her victims to be discovered by police. In fact, dead babies had been surfacing for months in the river, No one knew what was happening at the time, but the thinking was that there must be a so-called baby farmer in the region, which turned out to be exactly the case. Here's a rundown of the business, which, by the way, was legal. Let's say a woman or a couple had a baby they couldn't afford. Most of them weren't monsters. They wanted the best life possible for their child, but they knew they weren't going to be able to provide it. There were, of course, people willing to adopt children, people who, I don't know, might look a lot like folks today standing outside courthouses with signs that say, I will adopt your baby. Are some of those people genuine? Probably, but it's tough to tell the sincere people from the opportunistic creeps. Here's Alison Rattle, author of the book, Amelia Dyer, Angel Maker.
2: Baby farming was, I suppose you could describe it as unregulated adoption. Unmarried women could put an advertisement in a newspaper basically putting her child up for adoption. And then there were women who operated as baby farmers who would also advertise in newspapers looking to adopt babies.
0: British journalist Martina Cole from a series called Lady Killers. On any day in any newspaper, ads would
1: run soliciting for the weekly, monthly, or even yearly care of infants, all aimed at the mothers of illegitimate babies who wouldn't be able to work with the added liability of a child.
0: Some of those people really did want children and aimed to raise them lovingly. But others weren't so altruistic. If it sounds like a shady system, that's because it was. But the people who used it were desperate. Robotham again. That system offered an opportunity for the
1: child to be looked after, or at least Dealt with. So, for young women, married, unmarried, widows, if you
0: needed to work, you needed the baby farming system. Of course, it was tough to tell which potential adopters were the good kind versus the bad kind because, shockingly, the bad kind didn't advertise that they were bad. They made a point to sound good. Their whole goal was to get a few bucks for adopting this kid. And then they would either mistreat the child or use the kid for free labor, or in worst case scenarios, they'd kill the child outright to do away with the financial burden. At first, Amelia began her business as a legitimate nurse, the career she was pursuing when she married George Thomas. Along the way... She met a woman called Ellen Dane, who was actually a midwife. And she learnt
2: that Ellen Dane had a laying-in house, a house of confinement, where she would take in women who were pregnant and, and wanted to give birth, but out of the public eye, because obviously they weren't they weren't married. So to Amelia, she suddenly learnt of this like really easy way of earning an income.
0: Amelia started advertising about 1846. She opened her doors to pregnant women, most of whom apparently thought that Dyer was then going to adopt out the baby that she helped birth. That's not what always happened though. Quite often, she would smother babies at birth,
2: suffocating the baby at the moment its it's head came out so that it um, didn't turn blue because that was a sign that it had taken its first breath. So it would look like a stillbirth. So the death certificate would be all above board.
0: In these situations, the mothers would have never heard a cry, and the infant mortality rate was abysmal anyway, so how would they know any better? They might not have wished death upon their unborn baby, but babies died all the time by supposed acts of God. That, matched with Amelia's kindly bedside manner, not to mention the added trauma of just having given birth alone and scared in a stranger's home, surely would have quieted most questions. Amelia's husband, George Thomas, who was a good 30 years older than she, died in 1860, which seems to have shifted her business model. If you're curious, by the way, I'm not totally sure what happened to the child she'd given birth to during that first marriage. Some sources say she adopted it out to give herself more autonomy to run her business. Which is ironic, because through her new business, she no longer just helped pregnant women, but she advertised to adopt already-born babies, too. Which would mean that she outsourced raising her own kid, so that she could be hired to raise other people's kids. And we don't know how many babies and young children passed through Amelia's hands in this period. It's suspected there were dozens, But the fact is that this baby farming was huge business. By the mid-19th century, there were estimated to
1: be almost 2,000 baby farmers in London alone. Such was the supply of illegitimate babies. And many, like Amelia, recruited mothers through charming and persuasive
0: correspondence. Imagine that. 2,000 baby farmers just in London. And babies were turning up dead all over the place. Some had death certificates suggesting they'd been stillborn, but others listed vague causes of death that suggested malnourishment and wasting away. Others still were found tossed on roadsides or floating in rivers. Identifying these babies would be difficult today, but at least now we have DNA testing to help. In the 19th century, that was still the stuff of science fiction, so very often these babies stayed nameless, and their killers never even suspected much less charged. But then a big case happened in 1870 that changed things. A case that overlapped with Amelia Dyer because she often didn't work alone. She relied on other people to keep this charade of a business going. It was a syndicate, basically. As such, some of the babies Amelia had delivered or adopted, she subsequently sent to another woman named Margaret Waters, Waters was paid to care for the babies, but doing that properly cut into her profits, so she would feed them boiled bread and broth. At Waters' London home…
3: The babies wasted away. Their cries of hunger were suppressed with drugs. They lay on sofas or were stuffed into filthy cribs until finally starvation carried them off. Police discovered this baby farm in 1870, and Waters was arrested, tried, and executed.
0: Waters' case was publicized enough that it put a spotlight on the baby farming industry. Some of Amelia's longtime accomplices went into hiding. Amelia employed more pseudonyms and moved often to avoid detection, and she scaled back her business considerably. It seems she maybe even went borderline legit for a few years. And in that period, she married a farmer named Francis William Dyer. The two were quickly pregnant with a daughter they would name Mary Ann. That was about 1872, the same year that England passed the Infant Life Protection Act, which required that houses taking in more than one child for longer than 24 hours had to register with proper authorities. This was an attempt to curtail baby farming. Licenses were only to be granted to foster mothers of good character who lived in suitable premises. This wasn't an issue for Amelia until 1877, which is when her husband lost his job. Amelia returned to baby farming to make money from murder maps again.
3: Once again, the house was filled with visitors, with the sound of women in labor, with the newborn cries of those that lived and the silence of those that did not. There were letters to answer, adverts to place. I was always coming and going, taking away babies, returning with others.
0: Business was booming. It seemed like Amelia's husband wasn't naive to what his wife was doing. He might have even helped. That's not totally clear. What we do know is that he sired a second child with Amelia a son who showed his name, though at some point Amelia left her husband and became estranged from her son. While her marriage collapsed, her business thrived, but that came with its own set of problems. The more babies Amelia took in, the more babies died. That drew the attention of authorities who stopped by her home to investigate. They didn't see any dead babies, but it was immediately clear she was running an illegal baby farm.
3: On the 26th of August, 1879, the police came for Amelia Dyer. They couldn't prove the children had died through a direct or deliberate act, but there was enough evidence to convict Dyer of gross negligence. She was sentenced to six months hard labor.
0: Amelia attempted to avoid prison by taking an impressive amount of laudanum, one of the opiate tinctures she used to drug the babies to keep from crying. But despite downing two bottles of the stuff, she survived. Off to prison she went where the conditions would have been even harsher than those of the poorhouse she had spent her whole life trying to avoid.
2: She would have had no home comforts whatsoever. She would have slept on a hard wooden bench. She would have been made to do cleaning chores and cooking chores, but the vast majority of her day would have been spent um, in what they would call picking oakum.
0: This was among the most common forms of hard labor in Victorian prisons. Prisoners would be given this worn, thick rope covered in tar that was used in shipbuilding. Basically, the stuff was used as caulking, packed into the joints of timbers. It needed to be impenetrable so that it would be waterproof. Well, prisoners were handed this stuff and forced to literally beat the tar out of it, then untwist the rope strands. It was kind of a form of recycling. Those rope strands would usually be sold again to shipbuilders who would retar them and pack them again into timber joints. And that process would just keep repeating until the rope was too old to use it all anymore. It was brutal work. Bearing in mind, they weren't
2: allowed to use tools to pick apart the rope within a matter of hours. You know, your fingers would be bleeding, your nails torn. And this was day after day after day.
0: After Amelia was released in February of 1880, she was a changed woman, but not in the way her captors had probably hoped. She wasn't deterred from baby farming. She was simply more determined to not get caught. If anything, her prison experience made it easier for her to decide to kill the children rather than place them elsewhere. I mean, the bigger the syndicate, the more people involved, the more points of weakness, right? So she didn't rely on others to take care of the kids, she not only got to avoid paying those related fees, but she also alleviated the risk of them doing something to jeopardize the whole crew. It also seems she worried her daughter might jeopardize things as well, as documents show that Mary Ann Dyer was left at a London workhouse while a preteen. Discharge records show that she was released to her mother's care at age 12. Now, just what role Marianne would eventually play in her mother's crimes isn't totally clear. But it seems she was at least an unwitting cog in Amelia's baby farm machinery, as was Marianne's eventual husband, a man named Arthur Palmer. Marianne and Arthur had married May twelfth, 1894, according to parish records. Palmer listed his occupation as a working miller. His father had been a printer, but more on that couple later. First, let's talk about how this whole decades-long scheme started to finally unravel in the spring of 1896.
3: First body had been found on the 30th of March. A bargeman working his way upstream had spotted a brown paper parcel in the shallows near the riverbank. And when he tried to retrieve it, the sodden package split. The remains of a baby girl spilled out.
0: No one had a clue as to the baby's identity, but the circumstances were obviously suspicious. Not only was it clear that someone had tried to conceal the corpse, but there was tape around the infant's neck pointing to the helpless girl having been murdered. Authorities launched a search of the River Thames to see if any other body surfaced.
3: A baby boy was found on the 8th of April. He was just a few weeks old. Another was brought up on the morning of the 10th.
0: The afternoon of the 10th, a volunteer helping to search the water hauled out the carpet bag that would be Amelia Dyer's undoing. When the local coroner examined the contents of the carpet bag, he was surprised to find not one, but two bodies. At first glance, aside from the double body count, this find was much like the others. There wasn't much by way of evidence left behind, be on the tape and strangulation marks on the baby's necks. But then a detective noticed that one of the babies had been wrapped in a piece of brown paper. And on that paper was a very faint address for a Mrs. Thomas in Caversham. Chief Constable George Tuesley and Detective Constable Anderson eventually made a real breakthrough. They discovered a label from Temple Mead Station in Bristol. This is from a film called Angel Maker, Serial Killer Queen by Reality Entertainment. Playing Sherlock Holmes, they used microscopic analysis of the wrapping paper and found a name and address. Police traveled there and talked with a mail clerk who had bad news. Mrs. Thomas had moved, he said, but that wasn't all the clerk knew. Not only did he have a forwarding address for Mrs. Thomas, but he also had another name for her too. Mrs. Dyer, the mail clerk said, now lived in Reading. Police raided her home. At first glance, it could have seemed like a bus because there was just one infant there. But something seemed off about the sparsely furnished home. The cupboards were filled with baby clothes. With just one relatively healthy infant there,
1: why would you have so much on the premises? Particularly things like the nappies, the diapers, the other evidence of very young children.
0: It's simply not normal. Police found other evidence too, like dozens of letters Amelia Dyer had written to, and received from, mothers across the region arranging the sale of their children to Dyer, who consistently represented herself as a loving, childless woman desperately looking to adopt. Police also found receipts from pawnbrokers to whom Amelia had sold loads of children's clothing, It was through these letters that police deduced the identity of the girl in the carpet bag. They believed the baby inside had been Evelina Marmon's, handed over to Amelia Dyer on March 31st. But to prove that, they needed two things. First, they had to track down Evelina, and then they needed her to be willing to tell her story, which was no easy feat.
1: I think one of the things that all the illegal baby farms, including Amelia Dyer, capitalized on was that if you took in an illegitimate child, then the mother would be too afraid of the consequences to her to come forward.
0: Police found Evelina quickly enough. Her address hadn't changed since she and Dyer last communicated. Though, as you'll remember, Evelina knew Dyer as Mrs. Harding, The last she'd heard from her daughter's adoptive mother had come the day after the handoff. Evelina had written again to check on baby Doris, but had heard nothing in response. That's how Dyer tended to roll. She'd placate the mom initially and then just ghost her entirely. How police handled this notification is heartbreaking to read, by the way. When they found Evelina, all they told her was that it seemed she had left her daughter in the care of someone without scruples and they needed her to come to the station to discuss matters. Evelina, thinking that her daughter must have been abandoned somewhere, grabbed a shawl to wrap the girl in so she'd be warm on the trip home. Instead, authorities escorted Evelina into a room to identify the horrible remains of her baby girl. Evelina broke down. Her baby had been in stellar health when handed over, And, indeed, the autopsy found nothing wrong with the girl overall. Her cause of death had been strangulation. Though Doris had decomposed enough to make visual identification tough, her mother immediately recognized her blonde, curly hair. Next, they had to ask Evelina to witness a lineup to see if she could identify Dyer as the Mrs. Harding who took her baby. She did immediately. She also recognized some of her daughter's clothing, clothing that Evelina had sewn herself, as well as a powder box she had sent with Mrs. Harding. When she eventually testified in court, she had to pause again and again to regain her composure. Evelina didn't recognize the second baby, who had been entombed in the carpet bag with Doris, but he soon was identified as Harry Simmons. He was 13 months old, though his story was much like Doris's. He wasn't unwanted or unloved, but keeping him was untenable, and so his mother sought help, only to end up a victim of someone whose greed had overtaken any semblance of empathy. There were other victims, too. This is British journalist Martina Cole looking through archived evidence in the case. So this is her child sheet, and it
1: says here, she did feloniously, willfully, and with malice of forethought, kill and murder a certain female infant, Helena Frye, daughter of one Mary Fry.
0: Helena Fry's body had been the one discovered in the river on March 30th. Marianne Palmer ended up testifying against her mother, though she insisted she didn't know the extent of what had happened to the children she'd seen her mother with. Once, her mother had brought a baby boy to Marianne's house and refused to let Marianne interact with the child. Things felt strange when Amelia insisted on locking the child in a parlor while the two women left and stranger still when Marianne noticed that the baby hadn't moved in the slightest as it supposedly slept on the sofa. In hindsight, it was obvious what had happened, but at the time, she said she believed her mother, who said the boy was simply sleeping. Another of Dyer's children, the son she had had with her second husband, testified against her, too. He said he'd lost touch with his mom over the previous decade and actually asked the court to omit his name from the record because he didn't want to be associated with her. By the way, that request was denied, what with it being tough to hide the fact that he was her son and all. Anyway, Dyer's lawyers tried to plead insanity, but Mary Ann's descriptions of her mother didn't add up to insanity, and her estranged son's testimony seemed to bolster that thinking. Because remember, being legally insane doesn't mean you've got mental issues. You can have those plenty. The real question, at least in legal terms, is...
3: There's two questions to come out of Did she know what she was doing? Yes, she did. Did she know what she was doing was wrong? Simple question. If a police officer was standing beside you, would you have done it? No, you know it's wrong.
0: That was Alan McCormick, curator of the Crime Museum in New Scotland Yard. It took the jury just minutes to find Amelia guilty of murder. She was hanged on the morning of June 10th, 1896... Her case helped lead to stricter laws overseeing child adoption and baby trafficking in England, including the Infant Life Protection Act of 1897, which gave local authorities the power to oversee the registrations of nurses who had taken in more than one kid under the age of five for more than 48 hours. People who did that needed to be properly licensed. This change helped embolden local agencies to investigate suspicious activity with more vigor, And it also gave them power to arrest people for not properly registering what they were doing. And by insisting on stricter registration rules, it made it easier to notice when an adopted baby disappeared. In other words, the law helped ensure that authorities didn't have to sit around waiting for a body to surface before they could step in to do something about a baby farm. This was a step in the right direction, though let's be clear. These laws by no means stop the scourge altogether. We only need this postscript to see that that's the case. Amelia's daughter, Mary Ann, and son-in-law, Arthur Palmer, were released in connection with being accessories to the crimes that led to Amelia's execution thanks to a written confession Amelia had sent authorities that completely absolved the other two of all knowledge. But just how innocent they really were is tough to ascertain, in light of the fact that they were subsequently arrested for abandoning a separate adopted girl who was found in a railway carriage alone at just three weeks old. In 1898, the two were sentenced to two years of hard labor in prison. What became of the couple isn't totally clear, but I did find that in 1914, Mary Ann, apparently no longer married, was admitted into a London workhouse with her toddler son named Robert. Her profession was listed as hawker or peddler, as in she sold random stuff. While Marianne was released a few weeks after her arrival at the workhouse, the documents suggest she left her son behind. To research this story, I read Amelia Dyer and the Baby Farm Murders by Angela Buckley, watched several documentaries, some of which you heard from here, and also read contemporary news coverage. I also dug into Genealogy Archives. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.